Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association based at Wirtz University, Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast engages with issues about university life relevant to students and staff looking in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular area. My name is Nosipum Gomezulu. And I'm Kolega Shani. And, and we are your hosts. Hi, I'm Spiwe Mloi from VETS. Well, I think the biggest challenge for researchers in relating or writing about their research is presenting their research in such a way that the people they interviewed do not feel misrepresented or used as guinea pigs. Dr. Beth Velm is a researcher at the Mapungubwe Institute for Strategic Reflection. She's a Mandela Rhodes Scholar and a Rhodes Scholar. She was a postdoctoral fellow under the NRF Chair in Local Histories, Present Realities at Wits University. Her research explored Joburg nightlife cultures as sites of identity attachment and placemaking. Beth has written for the online magazine Bubblegum Club. Vale's doctoral research was completed at Oxford University, which was an ethnographic study exploring the medication-taking practices of HIV-positive adolescents in the Eastern Cape province of South Africa. She worked as part of a mixed methods team that worked collaboratively with government and local NGOs to inform policy and programming. Welcome to the show, Beth. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us. Um, I've known Beth for a while now uh, through our youth and adventures in a small eastern Cape Town. But one of the things that I know about you, Beth, is that you have a vested interest in uh, getting involved with the world around you, mm-hmm. specifically saving the world. Tell me about that. Tell me about saving the world, Beth. So my parents are probably the first people to blame. My mom, well, both my parents were activists in the end conscription campaign, in the ANC, in uh, the UDF. My mom was a teacher in Soweto and Swaziland. So anyway, the, the two of them raised us, obviously, in this dawn of democracy when everything was peachy and new and full of possibilities and full of political idealism and like fabulous leftist values. So from a pretty young age, that sort of sense of rootedness to the country and responsibility for its future was inculcated into both me and my brother. And it started to come out in various forms throughout my school career. I did a lot of work around youth days and public holidays. I was furious that my school, which was uh, private, didn't celebrate public holidays because I was convinced it meant that no one knew what these holidays meant or the significance of them. And as my self-righteous child, really morally self-righteous, uh, but well-intentioned. And so that started quite early. And then when I entered university, which is when you would have met me, I think I mean, my impulse was always about what I should do to make the biggest contribution. And at the time, HIV was such a massive crisis. It was a big part of my own personal sphere. I had people very close to me who were affected, but also it was the height of the Becky era. So people were dying en masse and um, our university at the time had little or no response. So we took responsibility for that as a student organization and and also I mean even before I took over that organization it was the strongest student movement on campus and a really useful way to enter into a lot of human rights and so there's a long journey that started from there and the way that it started to intersect with gender questions and with questions of um, structural redress and race and all of these things but to jump to the end of the story I think this period over the past few years and I was in Oxford, um, which is when the roads must fall, fees must fall. Protests were happening in South Africa, and then of course there were many South Africans in Oxford who, and especially in the Rhodes Scholar community, of course, who felt very um, yeah, attached and committed to the questions that were being raised by students in South Africa. And so there was a parallel movement that started happening there, um, that I was involved in in various ways. And through all of those conversations, both at home and in Oxford, I spent kind of a lot more time than usual. It wasn't as though the questions were new, they were just being asked in new ways. Questions around positionality in particular, and self-reflexivity in the process of, of activist work and even academic work. And I started to become more self-critical about what my role 
should be that if there is an issue in the world that is important to me it doesn't necessarily mean i am the right person mm. to be addressing that issue mm. uh, or that all of my skills are necessarily the right sets of skills to channel in that direction um, and so it was a really useful process of you know understanding my role as an ally in some context as a kind of vocal supporter in others knowing when to speak when not to speak when to listen and where my skills are best deployed and mm. when they're not and it was also i think a time when i became increasingly aware of my positionality within my own work where i'm researching you know hiv positive adolescents who are black closer speaking rural whose lives are vastly different from mine and obviously we managed to foster many points of important connection or i would never have been able to do my phd but coming out of the phd even though you know many significant things were achieved i did wonder whether from an impact perspective <clears throat> i mean from whether i was the right person to be doing the work I mean, from the perspective of kind of enhancing critical research and theory around HIV, I think I've still felt capable of doing that. But in terms of who should be intervening, I started to wonder whether that was my space or not. So I guess where I'm at now is thinking a lot more about, it sounds like thinking smaller scale, but I don't like to phrase it that way because it's not really smaller, but thinking about the people and spaces close to me, thinking about myself as kind of targets of... Um, redressive and progressive work, that that can happen at dinner parties, that that can happen in the way that I communicate with myself and others, that it can happen at the grocery store. And I started to think about kind of unusual spaces where politics happens and this is also I suppose the whole discourse of microaggressions has become more and more powerful. So that's also fed into what I've done. So that's partly why I transitioned into nightclubs because Firstly, the power dynamics are very different. The people that I'm interviewing are more or less my age, usually more or less my class. They get something really valuable out of the research because I'm writing a lot of press articles and I'm bringing support and exposure to the work that many DJs and promoters, etc., are doing. So the power dynamics felt different and refreshing, different to when I was in the Eastern Cape. But it was also a way of looking at kind of life and celebration and dance as a site of real politics, that politics isn't only in the kind of service delivery protest mm. or in the hospital where people are dying. It's also in the spaces that we often think are apolitical uh, and in intimate spaces, which I guess is more where I'm trying to play out my so-called save the world. <laughs> a really <laughs> long story. No, it's not a long story, but I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful reflection on your journey of mm -hmm. and the many points that I want to pick up on, mm -hmm. you know, involvement with student organizations, more on, you know, the experiences you had in the Eastern Cape and the research processes. But I just want to go back to maybe this very tongue-in-cheek way in which I asked this question around saving the world because mm -hmm. I think for me, I've been very conscious of the fact that as so-called born free generation our sense of what politics is mm. was very much shaped from what previous generations saw as like real politics which is in the streets which is consciousness raising which sees you the individual actor as like the big change agent you yes. you know the chats you have in the classroom are not the big change you need to be in the streets you need to be on tv right. and i think it's a really interesting thing to kind of reflect on how as the generation that now is kind of taking uh positions in academia and research institutes starting families etc that we have to really rethink how we do politics and social engagement and so this idea that one person will save the world especially like Mandela's yeah. children yeah. <laughs> we will kind of like be the hope generation and I really think it's important for us to actually like engage quite critically with what it means to save the world um, mm. and from what you what I'm hearing you say is a lot of it is also saving ourselves from yes. these misconceptions of being like one woman caped Avengers of injustice I mean in a way there's a kind of for so long I was driven by this question of what is the biggest most important impact that I can make in the world mm. and in the process of that I think I forgot to ask the question of what makes me feel good what is important things that I value what I want to constitute my life I never asked those questions it was always about what would the world deem a worthy life and mm. less about what would I deem to be a worthy life 
uh, for mm. myself. That always felt like a selfish question to be asking. That that my focus should always be on some of grand notion of service rather than what I felt like my life should do. But the process of it, and there were many people who kind of taught me this lesson along the way, but it becomes quite a narcissistic endeavor because you're very engaged in wondering what everyone else thinks about what you're doing, both the kind of the general world, but also the people who you're trying to so-called help or whatever, or support or be allies with or whatever. You're concerned about whether they think you're doing a good job. And so there's a lot of this like reputation management that's going on, that's troubling. But then in the process of that, and this is very familiar in activist circles and every activist circle I've ever worked in will talk about it, you also become self-sacrificial. You don't care for yourself, pay attention to your own needs. I mean, it's the irony of so many people who work in health really not taking care of their own health, mm. for example. Um, and you think you're being so kind of altruistic in the process, but you're really not, because all that's happening is you're making yourself unavailable to kind of your family, to your friends, and to in many extents to your organization, because you're not a full human during that time. You're kind of living on a thread throughout that period. You're not being able to be self-critical. You're not being able to care for your body and mind. You're not bringing your full self to the project because you've given it away a long time ago and haven't been taking care of it. And I see it many, many times over. So the importance of being able to like step back and take some time outside of movements and to heal and all of these things I mm. think is so important and it never stops being an issue it, it continued to be one all the way up till the end of my time at Oxford and then speaking to friends who were involved in movements back here as mm. well yeah. I mean you're touching on so many experiences I've had yeah. in terms of reflecting on like is this work worthy yes. and then the worthiness of the work always being tied into like well the the project itself is virtuous so whatever I do is in itself going to be virtuous and self-sacrificial and giving exactly. and I mean it sounds strange to reflect on it now but I mean, when you walked into my office you kind of pointed out at my certificate of yes, good deeds yes. <laughs> and at the time you're not thinking oh this is you know, for particular accolades I, I must make a particular kind of intervention and I think one of the things I'm finding really difficult to also square up in my own academic practice is you know writing an academic paper is so difficult not only because of imposter syndrome but because of this overwhelming desire to make a worthy contribution mm -hmm. and a virtuous mm -hmm. contribution and what that looks like I think consistently needs to kind of change with how you grow I guess as a person yeah it's growing up and it's hard because it's, it's a conflicted process because it's not as though I'm like you know I now feel as though these the, focusing on intimate spaces is necessarily the solution there's still a lot of times when I'm like oh my gosh am I doing anything is this does this count like <laughs> is it uh worthwhile but I think that you know the one thing that I'm trying to really push back against and there's a whole nother politics which is not just kind of unique to those two scholarships but I think to scholarships in general that focus on these questions of leadership and service mm. and put forward a very particular model of what those two things are you know what it is to be a leader and what it is to be of service and the model is usually kind of a type personality good at articulating themselves pub publicly you know really motivational running an organization um yeah, you know just kind of a particular type of leader right. who's at the forefront and who is articulating the issues and who is robustly involved in them and hopefully will run a you know un organization one day or be president or be ceo or whatever it might be um, and I think that in the process, a lot of the people who go through those programs who are exceptional feel like that is the kind of leader that they have to be in the world. And we obviously need many different sorts of leaders. And we need to be, like, I mean, I've like only just been able to say out loud that despite all of, you know, not even, and see, I'm even saying despite, which is a terrible thing to say, but that I'm going to use all that privilege that's been given to me through those kinds of scholarships to live what many people might be considered a simple life. You know what I mean? And, and that I can say that without feeling like I've sold out somehow or I've been ungrateful because often you feel like this expectation, like if, you, if this happens to you, you need to live this grand 
CV glittery <laughs> life. And that, you know, if you decided to, I'm going to use the example, but be a farmer who like tended to their land and took care of, I don't know, their family and wrote poetry every month, that somehow that wouldn't constitute a life worth living. Well, I don't know, know hey? So I think, I mean, your perception of what a simple life is can't be extracted from all those other experiences right. and even the the vision of what a simple farming life yes, would be yes, like yes. has a particular kind of not not manicuredness but like a particular orderedness yes, to it that absolutely. speaks to those, those very experiences of being you know type a high achiever yes. you're not just going to be a mom you're going to be super mom yes. you're going to be most zen mom most yes, together mom. Exactly. and and i think th- those are things that um those are things that are interesting to grapple with especially as trying to bring it back to our kind of um podcast episode yeah thinking of, <laughs> as somebody who's a young researcher right researching youth right. your perception of what it is to be young has been so profoundly shaped by being this high achieving mm. really like driven person how do you square that like so you are with young people in the eastern cape uh mm. often from rural backgrounds young people who are managing living with hiv mm-hmm. and then your experience as a private school educated kid with these very high hopes of changing mm-hmm. the world saving the world altering the world mm-hmm. how do you square those kinds of like being a youth but also being like super youth yes yeah i mean square that is difficult but i think that <clears throat> i don't know I, I always alienated from the kind of image of me that's generated by this what you're calling high achievement right so if like someone put my cv on the table and then there's me standing next to my cv i always felt quite alienated from the cv i mean it's me but it's not you know it doesn't really speak to anything about who i am or what i want in ways that i thought were useful mm-hmm. and so what i found really valuable about for example doing that Eastern Cape field work is that I quite deliberately didn't want to be in kind of Oxford libraries throughout my whole PhD and it was so amazing to spend eight months where my work literally constituted talking to young people and playing games and then hanging out with their grandparents and going to clinics and I mean obviously I say wonderful but there were many aspects of it that were painful but I was grateful that that was kind of my experience of mm. being a PhD student during that time. And I think that when you when that happens, the beauty of it is that my respondents know very little about me. They don't know Beth kind of highly driven wanting to save the world. They mm-hmm. just know this kind of well, in this case, this random light skin something that's arrived in their <laughs> rural village and now suddenly wants to hear their stories. That's pretty much all that they know of me. And so that's refreshing and the, and people were not over time you know the the people that you're working with are no longer scared to kind of push back and hold you to account and that is such a necessary experience mm. you know um so yeah i mean i think that that's maybe maybe one of the ways that just and you know if you spend if you spend a lot of afternoons like swimming with kids at the beach or there's not much squaring to do you're just another young person mm. the challenge comes you know when you go back to a place like oxford and then you are really living in a bubble and you have to Remember that there's a whole other world out there, you know? Mm. I don't know if that really answers your question. It kind of does, but maybe what you've just said now about going back to Oxford and mm. writing about young people in Africa, yeah. in rural yeah. Eastern Cape, Africa, yeah. which I guess is the kind of picturesque view that people, when they say, whoa, you know, research on young people in Africa, mm-hmm. oh, let's go to the most rural, rural, remote place mm-hmm. so that we can find you know how the other lives how did you work abroad yeah when you spend so much time like eight months in south africa doing all this research seeing these young people every day mm-hmm. and then suddenly going to an academic setting where you then need to kind of turn others lives <laughs> into a yeah. an ethnography um that yeah. doesn't breathe and laugh and contradict mm. as much as the lived experience mm. um and I asked this because I was just speaking to a, a writer 
based in Europe, an African writer based in Europe, and all he keeps getting asked is how do you write, you know, an authentic African story abroad? And so I'm curious how you you made sense of that experience of going to completely dislocated context from your research context. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of conflict involved. My immediate experience of returning to Oxford was quite frankly one of quite a lot of relief. I mean, those mm-hmm. eight months were incredible, but also very intensive and then complicated by the fact that many of the kids I worked with were very ill at times and so were, you know, in crisis management or there's um, abuse cases or missing children or... So, that you know, there's a lot of... I took a lot of emotional strain from that period and because I'm living you know, I spent some time in Moshua and some time kind of in and around Grimstown because I'm living there I can't escape it ever you know there's like sometimes kids knocking at my door or like families calling me or so it was it was like a really necessary relief to get back to Oxford and be able to just immerse myself in thinking about what I'd been through and the stories and the questions and to start like really creating a picture of it all was felt really good and felt like I was doing justice to it all finally Mm. to be able to sit and look at it in that way but it was difficult because you know I got so into the sort of creative process of analysis of writing and you slowly can feel yourself slipping away from the, the realities of people's lives and that process always makes you feel very conflicted. I mean one minute you're speaking to families every day and then a few months later you've sort of become strangers again and you're producing papers that are going to get you published in high-flying journals and you know and meanwhile you're getting texts from people that their grandfather has died or they can't renew their pension or whatever it might be so Mm -hmm. it, it does feel like two strikingly different worlds. In terms of presenting to others I feel like there's a slight discomfort to the fact that that HIV and then you add children is a very fashionable combination, mm. right? It's like these are two questions that when put together, people are really interested in. There's kind of that stereotype around like the foreigner and the AIDS babies, right? Like you, it's yeah, but it's also it's such an overarching picture of how people imagine right. people on the continent, which I want to talk about in a bit. But exactly. Already, so, there's just this perception of right. So it's coming African with babies. a lot, a lot of this, and so. But what I really appreciated being able to push back on a little bit is that most of the work in my context was happening on a very large scale, quantitative basis. Where and that often happens when you're trying to directly inform policy. I was mm. in a policy department, and I was one of the few purely qualitative researchers there, and definitely the only person that I knew of working in anthropological methods. And so I felt some kind of vindication in being able to tell real complex stories mm. um, that could give the numbers some life, you know, and make these real people and could also diverge from a lot of the assumptions um, that people have about how interventions work and how people use them in you know the context of the Eastern Games. But it is a challenge because you just you feel like there's there's never enough information that you can give to make someone fully I mean there's probably not enough information I can gather but in the course of a presentation to like mm. grasp the full context in which these stories arose is obviously yeah, impossible to do. Mm. And and did you find that your participants were curious about what you would do with the kind of data you collected? Mm. And I know for myself that complicated space of kind of wanting to share how I've written their yes. lives while also being very aware that the the data I collected and it wasn't even data, right? It's conversations. You yes, know, chats. Exactly. <laughs> and then you write them up Very as like nice. interviews, as like these vignettes. And a lot of the times these were not the ways in which we talked about it, if that makes sense. Mm. So I'm chatting to young people about identity construction and you know how they feel about this friend and how they feel about this space and then it translates into a much more complicated reflection on nationalism and you know post-coloniality which my participants aren't really into and interested in and so that that process of feeding back was always with this tension of saying okay well here's this bit that we chatted about but also 
this is the other ways in which the spit fits into the larger picture. Did you feel a similar kind of like ambivalence with how to share and what to share? Yeah, the how is is definitely key because you want to, you know, have a reciprocated conversation. And so mm. the language you use is obviously very important and even more complicated for me because sometimes there were real language barriers. I worked with an incredible research assistant. Um, more like a research partner throughout the whole the whole period. Um, he's co-author on all my papers. There were some kids who could speak, you know, great English, but then it would mix it around. Sometimes it would be only Tulsa, but my understanding improved over time. Anyway, so this this was a kind of three-way dialogue all the time. But what we tried to do is, as we went about collecting the data, certain kind of ideas started to form about how these things were connected mm. um, thematically or through some kind of argument, etc. And I was lucky to have kind of some space to return. So I did the rural field work, and then uh, there was a short break, and then I did some peri-urban field work, but I still was in driving distance of the rural participants. Mm. And so I could do some follow-up with them. I was able to find ways of also doing follow-up with the peri-urban. And so we would go back to them with articulations of the kind of analysis that we were finding. Mm. Um, and obviously the language we used would have to be slightly different. So, I mean, for example, one of the papers that um, we ended up writing was about many of the young people who worked with were orphans and whose mothers had passed away uh, from AIDS. And it was about the ways in which families invest medication with a particular kind of meaning that allows the child to almost redeem their mother's memory through mm-hmm. disciplined pill-taking. Mm. And so in this paper, uh, you know, discourses about redemption, discourses about um, intergenerational relationships, etc. But of course, when we went to the kids, our narrative was something like, you know, we've noticed as we've listened to you that your mothers are still very important to you and that when you take, um, you know, your pills, often your grandma will tell you stories about your mother and all, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. And we'll try to elicit feedback from them about the extent to which this is resonating with them. And I always felt the thing that conf- that made me conflicted about that experience is whether or not they would be able to come back and say, like, no, that doesn't resonate with me mm. at all. But there were some instances in which they were able to do that and nuance the findings. And I think it's just about the fact that we had managed to build that re- that relationship up over time. But it is, you know, in- incredibly tricky when you ba- you're basically doing a, another set of translation when you converge into academic language, mm-hmm. what it is that you've been doing um, in fields. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, you <laughs> you do such incredibly important work, and I, I don't mean to make you uh, no, no, no. Feel, these are you know, good like questions. Anxious about it because I think it's also a misconception that there is the perfect translation, and I yeah. absolutely hate it when people walk around saying, "Oh, I'm giving voice to the voiceless," and yeah. I, wanna, I just want to reach these kids. I mean, no. I feel like we've come a long way since Spivak gave us, you know, yes, totally. that, <laughs> that invocation of can the Subaltern speak? Absolutely. Of course the Subaltern speaks. Yeah. You need to learn to listen better and also to stop pretending that what we produce is the only way, I mean, in, in, in ethnograph- ethnographies and academic papers is the only way in which we communicate yes, the, exactly. the salience of work. So exactly. I mean, it also came out a lot. We did, I mean, as you know, because I think you were at one of them, we did a lot of dissemination of the kind of emerging findings to organizations mm. and clinics and that we were working with at the time, which was also really useful uh, critical feedback. And many of them also have first-hand interactions with my participants or participants like them and so could engage um, in that way. But yes, as you say, it's a, sub- it's a subjective rendering of what it was that both I and my research partner experienced with mm. this cohort of, of people. Um, and that is very clear. So, as you say, there's there's no yeah, there's no like even attempt at objectivity here. There's just kind of an attempt at ethics and authenticity, I guess, mm. and honesty in what you're doing. Mm. The young people you're working with were between ten and nineteen. Ten and nineteen, which is just in the the demographic that policymakers are most obsessed with, you know, yeah. 18 to 25. 18 to 25. Yeah. 18 to 20. Everyone is obsessed. 
with young rural, especially women, yeah. and HIV prevalence between these age groups. Um, did you find that in working with the NGOs and also maybe with government organizations that they had a particular idea of who the youth are that wasn't necessarily the kind of picture that emerged with the young people yes. that you're with? And maybe if you could tell me what those two pictures look like. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mean, obviously, as a kind of disclaimer, there's a lot of variation within how people in NGOs and in governments. Yes, see of course. Things. And and I also know that there's a lot of genuine investment and and good intention. But I think if I had to kind of articulate a schism in in how in how I ended up seeing the lives of these young people and how intervening organisations did, is that have a very kind of popular uh, discourse in not just in South Africa, globally, globally around health citizenship. That is all about people taking responsibility for their own health, feeling empowered and knowledgeable. You know, a lot of the treatment literacy um, work is in this language about is about young people being really in control of their long-term illness management and being able to be vocal about things like CD4 count, viral load, knowing what it means, knowing how to self-monitoring it, and feeling kind of like they have increasing independence and autonomy. In fact, I think there was a general sense that young people wanted independence and autonomy from Mm. the organizations that that were working with them. My experience, I mean, of course, I would not say that young people don't want autonomy at all, but the my experience with young participants is that it was incredibly important to them to feel connected, mm. much more so than it was for them to feel independent and in the world. I mean, they wanted to feel connected within the space of their families. They wanted to feel connected in their neighborhoods. So there was, you know, whenever there was conflict or an anxious tension within the family or neighborhood, it was a serious issue. And sometimes an issue for which young people would compromise their health if they thought that it would resolve those tensions Mm. Um, but on top of that the way that they saw the health system was about connection much more so than it was about building their own independence Mm. I mean connection to especially when it worked well right so you're going to the clinic regularly to pick up your ARVs for monitoring etc and sometimes it goes really badly when you feel no sense of recognition from that space that you're going to but the times that it worked really well was when young people felt like they that by entering the clinic, they were genuinely connecting to a whole network of care. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, even if that care is hierarchical and quite authoritarian, which it often was, and quite disciplinary, it almost served as another, it, like a similarly parental role in a way uh, that is disciplining but caring at mm-hmm. the same time. And it's not only offering your survival, but it's often linking you uh, to other forms of support groups, sometimes to food parcels, sometimes to grants. So you're a whole network of kind of livelihood and a sense of closeness to the state even uh, that comes through being able to link oneself to these forms of social connection. And so my general sense is that I felt as though um, organizations needed to pay more attention to the ways that young people and their families were quite deliberately investing, you know, the process of HIV treatment with all of this social meaning about connecting to each other and connecting to their communities and even connecting to the broader state. And that if they paid attention to that, then we might be able to really link and retain people in care Hmm. much better. It was when their treatment programs made connection difficult that things went very awry. And not all of that was necessarily within organizations control but um but yeah I felt that was key and I felt like sometimes there was almost a misinterpretation of the success stories through this lens of and it's a very neoliberal lens right Mm. the individual empowered autonomy rather than looking at it through through different lenses and I guess it's also the kind of stereotype of the Mm. often American teenager Mm -hmm, the idea that like I just want to be on my own leave me alone which I think is is really bizarre because in as much as you know teenagers want ah, freedom they also I think most people desire a sense of like structure and routine and order in order to be able 
to let loose and be free. Absolutely. And I think that's a, such a useful uh, intervention that you're making here around the importance of connection because I think that's also one of the weird ways in which we talk about rights in this yeah. country, that like rights discourse yes. break families apart, they create yes. these intergenerational schisms, when in fact <laughs> human rights shouldn't be incompatible with community Absolutely. and a sense of kind of like a shared Absolutely. sense of being. I mean, one super quick useful case, so they had this one kind of golden child uh, when I went there, who was always held up as a kind of example of a perfect health citizen. She took mm. her her treatment really well. She was seen as a success case. Um, her mother had died of AIDS and she, she'd grown up for a long time and ha- having to manage this chronic illness. And she had disclosed and she was open about her status and she was educating other kids. It's kind of this perfect example of what you would want. Mm-hmm. But she had a very difficult relationship with um, her family at home. It would have been a grandmother in this case. And so for me, her story was a story about how through the community organization that held her up as this beacon. She was really trying to create forms. She got such profound belonging from their mm-hmm. praise of her. And it wasn't even just that they celebrated her. You know, suddenly she's being taken on trips to Cape Town to go meet this donor here. Um, she can go and run and stay at so-and-so's house from the organization when she's having trouble at home. If she's having trouble at school, they link her to the... It's a whole kind of knot of social belonging that she's entering into Mm. by being this kind of perfect client so Mm. to speak because every other I mean she was also really struggling at school every other area of her life is so alienating to her Mm. um, that this is a space in which she truly kind of belongs and why she's so successful in the space that she Mm. feels like she belongs sure it's so heavy I actually (laughs) I'm remembering you know going when I was working with community-based organizations and going to hear one of yeah. your kind of feedback sessions. And I think one of the weird things that's happened in South Africa, because we've, at least for me, grown up in a context where HIV prevalence was just everywhere and we didn't have effective treatment and the sphere, yeah. <laughs> the sphere dominated our conversations around HIV, but also we kind of got tired, we got fatigued um, discussing how to actually think about sex, HIV and intimacy without kind of this big scary thing, you know. Um, And I I, I wanted just to to ask you a little bit more about you kind of how this research, not only with uh, young people um, uh, who are uh, dealing with HIV, but also with, in nightclubs with young people mm-hmm. of your generation, how this this theme of intimacy yes. kind of shows up in these in these yes. spaces in various ways. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think in terms of what you're saying, I'll, in a way, you and I have kind of lived through the whole journey of, of HIV AIDS in South Africa. Mm. And I think why looking at adolescence is so powerful. I don't know if many people don't know this, right? But a lot of the global community is talking about the end of AIDS, um, at least looking towards the end of AIDS, because we've had so many advances in treatment. These young people represent a kind of fulcrum in the epidemic. They're so interesting because adolescents globally are the only age group in which AIDS deaths are increasing. In fact, AIDS have almost doubled, I think, within the last decade amongst adolescents. They're also the only one of the only age groups, uh, because it's also slightly older than adolescents, in which incidents in- increase. So they're like a, they're kind of a crisis cohort. And the funny, the kind of fascinating thing in the South African context is that by working with adolescents, you've got young people who were born with HIV during a time when treatment was not available. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of what they represent is a legacy that we still haven't fully dealt with. So I feel like sometimes in our policy, we forget, you know, that there are still orphans who by now are on third, fourth line treatment, who mm-hmm. are not benefiting from a lot of the new technologies because they're so far advanced in their, um, in the kind of complications that they've had and the issues they have to deal with and so that many of them are not being catered for and that's where the death rates are. But then you also have adolescents who are being newly affected and as you say, young women who are most at risk there. I mean, highest infection rates globally, um, young women in sub-Saharan Africa. And so, and those young women, their entry into care also reflects all of this gendered mess. You know, often it's happening in antenatal clinics. So you only, you only get diagnosed if you fall pregnant. The space is incredibly punitive. And because you have fallen pregnant, you are the first to know about about your HIV and therefore you are 
have the responsibility to disclose your HIV. So it's always young women who are coming home with this information mm. and therefore the ones who are held culpable for mm. this information. And so the stigma is kind of perpetuating. But the point is that I, I think you're right that young people kind of signal to us both the past and future of the epidemic mm. and the fact that we are nowhere near the end of AIDS uh, in our context and particularly not for young people. Mm. Um, as far as intimacy goes, you know, it, it was really interesting that many of the young people that I was working with, most of them, um, were not kind of sexually active yet, but had huge ideations to be, you know. And a number were, particularly those that I recruited after having babies. And there, you know, there was this huge struggle over how not to be blamed for having brought HIV into, mm. how not to even be seen as the kind of bringer of HIV into a family. And it, it was a huge issue. But as far as the... Um, the nightclubbing goes, you know, it's interesting because it's been very refreshing for me because I, I, when I speak about intimacy in the context of nightclubs, I've been talking about less about sex and more about dance and bodily contact and the kind of organization of bodies in a nightclub, which is sexually charged and sometimes sexually threatening, but not overtly yeah, it's obviously not sex in a kind of ex- explicit way until people leave the nightclub pad. Um, or not. Or not, right? Or whatever it is that they're doing. But, uh, so I haven't asked about sex in explicit ways, but what I have found really kind of interesting is that in a nightclub where I expected there to be a lot of threat, particularly for women, there has been much more of this elusive empowerment that I really struggled to find in the Eastern Cape, for mm-hmm. example. You know, many women have said to me that the unique thing about the nightclub is that even though they do get bothered and pushed around, there's recourse. You know, you can go to the bouncer and you can say, this guy is bothering me, mm-hmm. and he will actually do something. Whereas everyday life, when you're just like walking around in the streets and someone is following you and catcalling you, there's no one to mm-hmm. talk to. So there's like a strange sense of additional safety that comes there. On top of that, many speak about, you know, like an outfit that I wear to the club tonight is like perfectly, super sexy, perfectly appropriate. When I'm working home, walking home tomorrow morning, suddenly that mm. thing is no longer appropriate, mm. right? So there's the particular kinds of license that women especially start to have in the nightclub as much as there is also kind of a lot of attention and uh, kind of aggressive sexual advance Mm. from others in the space. So it's kind of more muddy and complicated than I had expected it to be. But in a nightclub, you know, there's no... There's so much sound and there's so much darkness that that all you have is your bodies. There's no escape, you know what I mean, from your body. You can't talk to someone, you can't introduce yourself, really. All you have is that body. And that has beautiful implications for the way that people communicate non-verbally, for the kind of beauty of dancing and all of the stuff. But it also means that, you know, when I walk into the club, I walk in as light-skinned, mixed-race woman. And that is how I'm received for better or for worse in that space. And so the, the kind of racial, class, gender dynamics become particularly charged because it's, it's bodies and that's it, mm. you know? Yeah. No, I mean, just thinking about our recent endeavors in a club, where Beth uh, and I hosted a a chat Mm -hmm. for Women's Day, and it's really interesting that you're saying that the body is the only way in which you can be read, because outside of kind of explaining, actually, I'm quite an interesting person, (laughs) I read these kinds of books. Exactly. (laughs) I don't always, you know, dress in glitter. That... Because it's such a, a youthful space, I mean, obviously there'll be older patrons too, but it's mostly a youthful space. Mm-hmm. And I think there's kind of this weird fantasy that we also have about post-1994 uh, generation, beyond color, yeah. beyond sexuality, <laughs> you know, we are just this post-everything generation, is that in the club is where all these, you know, lines are pretty stark, where race does matter, where sexuality does matter, where class does matter a lot, and the ways in which those things are coded is still very much in the old ways in which those those power differentials 
um, work in, in South Africa. And so I guess in, in, in bringing your academic interest together with your engagement in, in popular spheres, whether mm. it's community-based organizations or in nightclubs, how do you find that the work that you write about, I guess, in popular media mm. gets received, I guess, differently or yeah. similarly than... Yes. Is there similarity in the way in which your work is read? Yeah. I did want to say, in, in relation to your last point, that I have this notion of, you know, Post 94 kids being all like, we are one, there is no colour, or whatever. Um, I mean, obviously... <laughs> Thank you for that Post 94 song. <laughs> obviously, the student movements have been done a lot to debunk that, but mm. I think a similar stereotype happens around partying, right? That it's this escapist, utopian space, um, which, as you quite rightly say it isn't. But on top of that, I've been fascinated by the ways in which very overt politics is increasingly brought into the club, mm. you know? So, you know, South Africans, we love to party in a haunted space, you know? We did it at Rhodes when we partied at the Old Fort, you know? We, we party at Kitchener's, we party at the uh, Victoria Station, we party in places that have such kind of wretched history. And in the context of a kind of societal rethinking of symbols and all of this stuff, that has such politically important meaning. Especially when a place like Kitchener's, right, is opposite the road from a place called anti-establishment. And we have DJ Das Kapital. And, you know, there's all these like political signals. The most overt of it for me, it's also coming out for me, I think, in the kind of revival of black monochrome as a really fashionable party theme, but also way to dress. Uh, black monochrome, natural hair, like the Afropunk influence, that is very much part of the club scene in Joburg. I remember going to Soweto June 16 last year, and I went to Zone 6, and obviously like it's pertinent to be in Soweto, but there were projections of Hector Peterson and student corpses all over the walls while students are partying. It's a quite literal dancing on graves process of mm-hmm. like dancing through our politics, you know, mm. I, I do not get a sense of escapism in the way that we party in South Africa. I get a sense of partying as celebration, as mourning, as anger, as grief, as all of these things, just in the same way that a protest, for example, is anger and dancing and singing and connection and all of these things. Our kind of, we are always shuffling this kind of very blurry line between play and politics in this country that I find really fascinating and comes out in nightclubs a lot. Leaving, but not quite leaving mm. academia. Mm. I wanted to ask you about that. And I, you've touched a little bit on it about, you mm. know, writing popular media mm. and also thinking through your experience from fieldwork to write-up. But um, you're now working at Mistra. Mm. Um, and no longer in a university. How are you finding that kind of transition after, I mean, you and I are deeply institutionalized. I mean, I just, I can't leave school. I I won't leave. I won't leave. (laughs) I just keep being at school. How are you finding kind of leaving the institution? I'm going to be bluntly honest. I don't know whether that will fare me well or not. But, I mean, it was a very difficult decision. I was absolutely loving my postdoc. There was no issues there. I think it's really hard in academia at the moment because you, for me I feel like there are kind of two choices. You're either at a postdoctoral level, you're either going to keep kind of hunting from postdoc to postdoc or research grant to research grant and it's a very insecure way to mm. exist. You know, you're regularly applying for funding and you're living pretty much from check to check. And well, you, so you can you can go that route, and there's insecurity to that, but there's also the sort of bliss of having control over your time, and control over what research you want to do, and absolute and utter independence. Or you can become a full-time academic and get a permanent position, which is hard. I mean, there aren't many available, but I wasn't sure that I wanted to go that route yet. I was worried if I went into a lectureship position or something now it would be very difficult to do other kinds of work later on in my life. And so I made the decision to leave now and try and broaden my experience and to know that I could always return because the thought of leaving it forever was sort of too much for me. The transition has been heavy. I mean, the 9 to 5 has been heavy. 
not because I'm not used to hard work, just because I'm used to, like, if my brain is not working right now, then I go do something else and I come back when it is and I maximize. So the notion that my brain is at its best from nine to five in these particular hours is a struggle for me to work through. Um, but the collegial environment is really great. It's a lot less lonely than it was being a postdoc mm. sometimes. And working in teams has been really wonderful. I feel often like much more directly connected to the output and its impact, um, which has its advantages. But there's of course the disadvantage of, you know, a lot of the time you get commissioned or asked to do particular projects that might not be within your exact sphere of interest or in the direction that your career is going in your mind. Mm-hmm. and. You just, you know, have to do those projects and funders have requirements and clients have requirements and it's not just about you and what's precious to you in your heart, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think right now, probably like everyone, I'm trying to play play a game of gaining as many skills as possible, but but for the first time in my life, a lot of my passion projects are not necessarily in the in my nine to five, mm. um, and that means extra hard work because outside I have to put outside time um, into doing those things and to make sure I keep up my own publication record, etc. On top of my nine to five job, so it's quite burdensome, um, but it is really comforting to know that there's something permanent at least for a few few years and possibly renewable so I can feel like an adult for a little while and like you know have insurance and pay off a car and do the things I haven't been doing whilst being a student forever but who knows I mean I'm open to many things changing and to the fluidity of it all but I'm learning learning a lot and it's as you say it's not a huge it was a kind of midway departure Mm. because I still get to do a lot of research and collaborate with academics just through a different entity. Dr. Bethel (laughs) thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simba Rashe Wondems.